You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 6. Um, we're doing a series now called Just Like Jesus and looking at uh, actions and emotions um, exhibited by Jesus. If we are called to be Christ-like, called to be conformed to the image of God's Son on a daily basis as Christians, as something that defines us, that Jesus is the, the image in whom um, we are called to be daily uh, learning how to grow into His likeness and living the kind of life that Jesus lived um, and the, be the kind of person uh, that He was. We want to be looking at those things in maybe um, less normal ways. Last week we took a look at joy and what does it mean that Jesus had joy and exhibited joy? Um, what was it that, uh, uh, that we looked at except that uh, everything that Jesus did, He did for the sake of joy, His own joy. Uh, he pursued the will of His Father for the sake of that. This week, we want to take a look at an aspect of Jesus that you're probably not familiar with. In fact, I'm pretty sure, and if you grew up in little kids' Sunday school or things like that, uh, images of angry Jesus was never shown in any aspects of things. Um, you know, they're, they're, even if you're old enough to have felt board kind of story things, I don't even know if the... We have a felt board set up here at, at church. I don't even know if Jesus flipping over tables is a felt board thing um, or not. Um, but the, the idea of Jesus being angry, sometimes we shy away from because anger is so oftentimes associated with sin. And we know that Jesus was sinless. And yet the Scriptures describe uh, times in which it says Jesus was angry. Uh, in fact, specifically, uh, at least three times, and possibly four, and what I mean by possibly four, when we say the, t- the, the picture of Jesus flipping over tables, when you look at the Gospels, there's one of them, uh, one of the Gospels that records a time of Jesus going into the temple and doing that whole driving out money changers and flipping over tables at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, And then uh, the other ones talk about him doing it at the end of his ministry. So that it's actually possible that Jesus did that not once, but twice went into the temple and flipped over tables. Another time, uh, the Scriptures say that Jesus got indignant with His disciples, specifically when, the, when they would not let the children come to Him. Uh, and He rebuked His disciples, and it says that He was indignant for them, and He says, let the children come to Me. But today we're going to look at um, one of the stories of Jesus' life that describes Him being angry that I think is so profound and I think is helpful for us as we think about our own anger. When you think about your own life and you think about times in which you have been angry, you probably don't have to think too far into the past uh, to remember a moment in which you were angry. My most recent experience of that was here just a little bit ago as I was dealing with a computer that didn't want to work with me. And I was going, Lord, you have a funny sense of irony. Um, But Shell and my first, um, shall we call it a dynamic disagreement, uh, dynamic discussion, that's that's the proper term for it, 
right? Uh, was very early in marriage when that honeymoon phase where everything is marvelous and wonderful and new and all that kind of stuff begins to change a little bit. Uh, and it was the moment in which we're, you know, we're absolutely broke college students, right? Freshly married. Uh, and it was, it was uh, I think it, it, it wasn't immediately after getting married. It had to have been long enough for us to both run out of toothpaste and have to buy one tube of toothpaste, because that's what you do when you're broke, married, college student. You buy one tube of toothpaste. And it was in that moment that I realized that Shell and I were uh, absolutely as opposite as you could get. Because Shell squeezes the tube from the middle. And, most, and there's a bunch of people in the room who are like, yeah, what's the big deal? That's what I do, right? I, on the other hand, squeeze the tube from the end. So how many people do we have that squeeze from the middle? You're willing to admit that you squeeze from the middle. Okay. How many people are sane and squeeze from the end? Alright, there you go. There's my people, right? Now, do you, you understand what the issue is with the... Alright, we got one married couple. Which one do you, what do you do here? Is we're not it one? married yet. No, no, we're not married yet. We're not sharing toothpaste yet. Right? Squeeze from the middle squirts it all to the end, which is not where you want it to go, right? You want it to come out the other side, right? And so it was one of these like playful banter kind of things, but it was one of those where we were like, we can't have one tube of toothpaste, right? Like, this is, this is going to end. We so splurge and buy the second tube of toothpaste because it was one of those you walk in and you're just like, oh, all right. For her, it wasn't a big deal. It's just, it's our, you know, just pick it up and squeeze it. But for me, I have to sit there and scrape it all the way to the end, right? And there's a sense of anger that wells up and we ask the question, is this, is this reasonable anger? And of course, the answer is no. Of course not. But when oftentimes is anger reasonable, Right? You don't have to make yourself angry. It's not like you're looking at a situation and going like, all right, I'm going to make myself angry at this thing, right? It just shows up. It just is there. It's just, it's present in the reality of it, right? You smack your hand with a hammer. You don't tell your hand, all right, now I want you to hurt. It just does. That's what, it, that's what emotion is. You don't make emotion happen. Emotion just shows up in your life. And anger is one of those kind of things. And it's the question of what do we do with the anger that is actually good or bad, life-giving or life-robbing. One of the reasons I love the Gospel of Mark is on a number of different occasions, uh, Mark writes the same stories that we read in other places, but he gives us a glimpse into the, the, the emotion or the categories of Jesus. One simple one of that is the story of the rich young ruler, that it comes and he tells you know, the whole thing. And then it says, when he says, all of these laws, all of these rules I've kept since my youth. And the other Gospels just simply say, then Jesus looks at him and says, uh, then this one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. But... In Mark's Gospel, he says Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, this one thing you lack. This little nuanced component, an aspect of the reality of the humanity of Christ. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 1, we get that same kind of a thing. This story is told uh, in all of Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke uh, as, it, uh, as it plays out. But only in Mark do we get this little tidbit. And let's see if you can pick up on it. In Mark chapter 3, verse 1, he begins, Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man with the shriveled up hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We get this story of this image of Jesus. He's in um, the, the community of uh, Capernaum. He's been there for a little while. We see uh, all the way back in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, it says that they went to Capernaum and there on the Sabbath came, he went to the synagogue and he has a similar experience with a demon-possessed man who comes and confronts Jesus on the Sabbath and Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and it comes out and everybody's response is kind of mixed. There's some people that are looking at it going, this is incredible. People don't just do this. But then there's another group of people, this religious zealots, these uh, legalistic individuals known as Pharisees, who look at it and say, why did He do it on the Sabbath? The rule of the Sabbath was the day of rest. It was the day that marks the seventh day of creation when it says that God, on the seventh day God rested from His labors and He gave that day of rest to uh, the Israelites as a memorial of, of, uh, uh, of, his, uh, of uh, his completed work for them and He gives it to uh, uh, them that they should do no work on the Sabbath day. Uh, and that was interpreted in all kinds of different ways. Uh, it was meant that you could only on the Sabbath day uh, travel as far as you could throw a stone. That was considered to be anything more than that was considered work. Uh, to bear any kind of load uh, was considered work. And so they asked the question, what is a load? And they said that a load was anything more than three dried figs. To carry anything more than that would be considered a load. All of these rules that were upon there. And as Jesus was in Capernaum, He kept getting into trouble specifically on the Sabbath. He heals the demon-possessed man. His disciples are traveling and they're walking through a field and some of His disciples are hungry and so they grab some heads of grain and they rub them in their hands to get the outer coating off of them and they pop them into their mouth as a snack. A very common thing as people would be traveling all along the road. And on the day that they do it, it just happens to be a Sabbath day. And so the leaders of this particular synagogue look at Jesus and they say, you're supposed to be a rabbi aren't you going to rebuke your disciples for working, reaping, harvesting on the Sabbath? And Jesus looks at them and basically goes, okay, one, that's not reaping. I don't know if you've ever done any harvesting, but what they did, that wasn't that. And two, and He says this specifically, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. And here on this day, he goes in again on the Sabbath day into the synagogue and everybody's looking at him. It's, it's thick with anticipation. What's Jesus going to do today? 
And not think with anticipation of like, what's Jesus going to do today? But what's He going to do today? English is a funny thing. You just change the tone and it changes the meaning, right? And Jesus knows this and He doesn't try to hide it. Jesus sees a man with a shriveled hand. The, the word that's used here of this uh, means that this is not a, a recent thing. This was when He smacked His hand last week and He's got some scarring on it or something. This is something like this individual could have had something like polio or a stroke as a child and caused His, his arm and His hand to wither, to lose all muscle strength in it. Literally, the, the, uh, everything of connecting that's in it drew the hand up and it was not usable. And again, in an agrarian world, in a world in which the ability to use your hands and feet and to uh, live a, a functional life, as we are probably as close in the Western world of living that kind of a way, to not be able to get out and harvest moose or harvest fish or be able to cut wood or do those kind of things because of physical limitations was a severe handicap, a severe disability. And this was this the, the life of this individual with this shriveled hand. Jesus sees him. And he doesn't just walk over to him and said, Son, show me your hand. You're healed. Go in peace. And quietly, Jesus looks at him and he says to this man, Stand up in front of everybody. Now, this wasn't a life and death kind of thing. This wasn't an individual that was on his deathbed, uh, about to die of a disease. If Jesus had waited a day to heal him, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. He could have waited until Monday or Sunday or uh, any other day to go to this man and heal him of his situation, of what he's got going on. He could have done any of those kind of things. And yet, that's not what Jesus was concerned about. Jesus was concerned about uh, the hearts of the people that were in there that were watching it. And so He tells him, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asks these religious leaders... A theological question. Remember, they were, they were wrestling with the kind of things of saying, God said we shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So the questions they were asking is, what constitutes work? What constitutes labor? What is it that uh, we want to make sure we don't break the law, so we want to back far away from it and add layer upon layer upon layer? Jesus cuts through all of that and He asks them a very simple question, but a legal question. What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? evil, To save a life or to kill? Sounds like a pretty simple answer, right? Do you want to save somebody's life or kill them on the Sabbath? Which one would be better? Well, obviously we want to save a life on the Sabbath, not kill them on the Sabbath. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the... Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees went to the Roman leaders when Jesus was on the cross and wanted to expedite His death because they didn't want it to happen on the Sabbath. They didn't want it to transpire and then what do you do with a dead body on the Sabbath? You can't carry it. You can't work in those kind of ways. So kill Him before the Sabbath. That's the way, that's the answer to this. Jesus says, what's lawful? To do good or to do evil? Seems like a really simple question, especially for people whose life definition is professionals 
in the Scriptures. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. They had the Old Testament memorized. Not only did they have the Old Testament memorized, they had most of the works that had been written about the Old Testament memorized and read. These were individuals who literally had PhDs in Sabbath law studies. Jesus asks a simple question, is it right to do evil or to do good on the Sabbath? And their answer, silence. But they remained silent. They didn't say a word. And at this point, the humanity of Christ wells up. He looks and He says, He looked around at them in anger. We're going to look in other sermons in this series about Jesus looks on the crowds with compassion. We're going to look at times where Jesus looks at his situation with uh, with or somebody's sympathy, or, uh, situation with empathy. We're going to see where Jesus experiences exhaustion. But this is such a profound thing to sit there and look at. At the one who's the the one who every every being that he's talking to there is made in his image. All things were made by him and for him. All glory is due to him. He looks at them and asks them a simple question, a simple question that reveals the truth of his own heart, of God's plan for the universe, of all things. And their answer is utter silence. And the fuse goes off in Jesus's heart. He looks at them in anger and deep distress, grief. His soul is so weighed down by the deafening silence of what they have to say. And so He says nothing more to them, but to the man with the shriveled hand. He says, stretch out your arm, and He does, and it's completely healed. And their response is the same as it was with the demon-possessed man. Not to say, oh my goodness, that's not something that happens. We ought to listen to this guy. But their answer is this. It says, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, the Sadducees, literally the opposite side of the political, theological spectrum with one purpose. How do we kill this guy? How do we get rid of him? There's not many things in the United States that can galvanize the left and the right to hate something so much, right? I think the last time I can even remotely remember anything close to that was probably 9 11. Probably that I can remember hasn't really been anything anywhere close to that that galvanized. Ideologies so much towards one single passion. And yet Jesus sparked in them such a fierce hatred that they were willing to work with their enemies against Him. And Jesus knew all of this was coming. So what do we learn from Jesus' anger? What do we learn from how it was that Jesus responded in this? Well, the first thing is this. That Jesus' anger comes after long-suffering. Jesus' anger comes after long-suffering. Remember I said that Jesus came into Capernaum two chapters ago. 
And he has multiple incidences, multiple situations. He's gone into this, uh, this synagogue. He's been the visiting rabbi. He's visited with these folks. And he's seen their actions of disbelief of what God has taught. They have the Word in front of them. They've read it. They've studied it. But they have not understood it. They've seen His miracles. They've seen His love. They've seen His compassion. And they won't receive it. Again and again and again. And it's not until after long suffering that Jesus' anger shows up. When it comes to emotions, remember I said that anger is not one of those things that you have to make happen. But you can grow in such a way as as a human being of which you have emotional resilience. You have uh, emotional strength to where things that maybe uh, made you fall into depression really quickly don't do that anymore because you've learned how to do that. Anger is one of those things. Oftentimes, we uh, mislabel anger and rage. Anger and rage. And the reason I make a distinction on that is the Scriptures very clearly say, be careful in your anger not to sin. The Scriptures very clearly teach us that anger in itself is not sin. Base emotions, as they flow out of our life, when you, you, know, when you feel sad, you're, you're not sinning. When you feel uh, fear, you're not sinning. When you feel anger, you're not sinning. It says, in your anger, be careful that you don't sin, that it doesn't lead you into a place of sin. But I would contend with you that rage is not anger in that rage always does show up in a sinful fashion. And here's the other thing I would contend with you on this. There's a a book uh, by a guy named Dr. Chip Dodd who writes on the the subject of emotions. Uh, And he contends that rage is actually stems not from anger, but from fear. That rage is a uh, is a response of control to something that is out of my control. I'm I'm either afraid that I'm going to look bad, and so I'm going to control the situation by rage. I'm afraid you're going to make me look bad, and so I respond to it to make you afraid. I'm afraid, so I want to make you afraid, and the way I can do that is by rage, a controlling of that. So one question to ask ourselves when we find ourselves in anger, anger towards our kid, anger towards our spouse, anger anger towards our our boss, or those kind of things, it's one of those heart introspections of saying, and what I am experiencing, am I afraid of some kind of outcome? Am I afraid this is going to make me look bad? That others are going to judge me? That that your actions are going to do that? Or am I afraid of something from my past coming back into it and so I want to control the situation? Distinctly different from uh, what the rage is that is here, which is a response to something that ought not be. Something that ought not be. Jesus' anger comes from long-suffering. And this is one of those things that we have to pray for. If our response is to jump quickly, to be not slow to anger, but fast to anger, 
When we'd be like, no, 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 this ought not be, I'm going to be angry about it, and I just live as an angry individual. What happens a lot of times with anger uh, is that uh, when, when something happens, it causes us to fall into a place of depression. Because as we're looking at it, we're saying, this ought not be, and there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. Jesus shows us that His anger doesn't show up immediately the first time that they do something knuckleheaded. Thank goodness, because the whole entire, if that was the case, the entire New Testament story of Jesus would just Jesus be getting angry with His disciples and angry with His disciples and angry with His disciples. He doesn't do that. He is very long-suffering. And this is a character quality of God that is described there, that God is long-suffering. If we ask the question, why is God not returned? Why is Christ not returned? It's because God is long-suffering. God's still waiting for those people who have yet to come to faith in Him to come to faith in Him. He's being gracious towards them. In the same way that He was gracious towards us, anger comes after long-suffering. That's one thing that we need to know about the character of Jesus in anger. The second thing that He shows us here is that anger comes uh, for Him at a lack of compassion. A lack of compassion. This is what I meant when I said that anger is a... uh, is a response, an emotional response to something saying, this ought not be. Sometimes that's something outside of us, right? You hear of some heinous uh, crime that's taken place against a juvenile, and it makes you angry. It makes you very angry, as it rightly should, because we look at it and we say, this ought not be. There is something unjust. This should not be in this kind of scenario. And it makes me angry. But sometimes the things that ought not be happen to us. If you've been sinned against by somebody and your response was to be angry, that wasn't a a sinful response. That was a natural response to the reality of this ought not be. You should not have been treated that way. That should not have been said to you. And in Jesus' case, this was Him looking at a very simple answer earlier in the, uh, in the, um, uh, the, uh, in the story, he, or in uh, uh, the telling of this, by one of the other Gospel writers, He uses the illustration, He says, How many of you, if your donkey falls into the ditch on the Sabbath day, will work to get him out? And they don't answer that either because the answer is, well, yeah, we're going to get our donkey out of the ditch on the Sabbath. We're not going to wait till Sunday to do that. We're going to do it on Saturday. And Jesus is basically looking at him going, don't you know that this man deserves help? Now, before we get, you know, Jesus was performing miracles, but healing even in their day was a broad subject. He had miraculous healing but there was also the healing of giving somebody medicine. So literally in this form of, of uh, legalism that they had, remember Sabbath day is different for they had sat, sat, their Saturday was Sabbath. 
So literally under this code of, of theology, they were saying, listen, if you're sick and we can wait to give you medicine until tomorrow, we'll do that. But if it can't wait, in other words, if a lady goes into labor on, a, on the Sabbath day, it was okay for the women to work to help her deliver the baby because it can't wait. Jesus is looking at it, he's saying, even in your own thing, you're saying, here's the reality of these simple things. It just seems logical. This ought not be. And if I have the ability to do something about it, shouldn't I do something about it? And their response to it was nothing. Silence. How many people could I quote in this sermon over the years that have said the most heinous thing that good people can do in the face of evil is nothing? We know it's bad. We know it's evil. And if it is in our power, not to change all of it, because it's probably not in our power to change all of it, but to relieve some small aspect of suffering... Ought we not to do something about it? Of course we should. And Jesus' frustration, Jesus' anger, was that their response was silence. Not compassion. Not justice. Not mercy. Not help. Not any of the things that God commanded of His people. So anger comes after long suffering. Anger comes uh, for Jesus after, uh, to a lack of compassion. Looking at it and saying this ought not be. But anger comes also from the frustration of a system that keeps people away from God's design. It's a very long point of that. Anger comes from the frustration of a system that keeps people away from God's design design. Jesus is looking at these Pharisees who know the Scriptures and yet their whole system is about following rules, not about living within the joy of God. See, Jesus taught us that everything that He did, including obeying all of God's commands, was ultimately about His enjoyment of who God was and is. When God made the world and made the earth and set in motion all things that are and placed us into it, He said, all of this is good and it's for you. It's for your enjoyment. But where we erred was we thought that that was the end goal. To greater enjoy the things. Rather than to see them as the gift of the gift giver and to enjoy Him through all of those things. Through the dynamic, uh, dynamic means by which God gave us creation. The Pharisees lost that. They said our top goal is not to love God. Our top goal is to follow the rules. However we can follow the rules. And they created an entire system that captured people and made it so they could not 
actually enjoy God. Think about the other times when I described Jesus. It's where it says Jesus was indignant or Jesus was angry. The system of society said kids were worthless. That's maybe a bit of an overtone of it, but they, they weren't considered really a part of They were just things that existed around that you kept alive until they could be productive parts of society. And the disciples wanted, because Jesus was too important, His time was too important, so keep the kids away from Jesus so He can do the important things. And Jesus got angry at him and He said, let the kids come. They want to see Me. That's the point. Let them come. When Jesus goes to the temple once or twice, what did He find people doing? He found people putting barrier upon barrier upon barrier in the path of people experiencing the fullness of God's love. Experiencing the sense of joy and peace and restoration of wholeness, of reconciliation to their God. They couldn't go and and give their own money. They had to go give their money to somebody else so that they could give them that kind of money so that then they could go and buy the thing so that they could do the worship. And it was a sense of extortion. It became a business. And Jesus' answer to him after he flipped over the tables and made a whip and beat the guys out of the temple, He said, Does not the Scripture say, quoting from Isaiah, that My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. They made a system that kept people from experiencing God's good design. The Pharisees did the same in this. This man was standing in front of the Son of God and their system that was that they had put in place was keeping that man from experiencing connection with his heavenly Father. They did nothing about it and he was angry about it. You know, we oftentimes talk about living in a world that is red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican, left versus right. I recently heard a, uh, a description that I thought was really interesting. It said, you know, for a long time, most of, most of uh, at least the last hundred years, people did go along political ideologies, but something has shifted in that. And they said that we've, we've changed as people from political uh, definitions to credentialed versus conspiracy. Credentialed versus conspiracy. And you think about it. Think about the whole pandemic and the way the pandemic went. You had people that said, we want to listen to the experts. They said this is good. They said this is right. They said this is the way that we need to do it. So we should do it. Then you have the other people that are like, yeah, but they've got an agenda. They've got their own ideas. They've got their own financial backing. They've got their own plan. This thing says this. These, this individual, they're not tied with you know, any of this, uh, this baggage that this whole group is or whatever. And They say this, so we think this is how it is. Credentialed versus conspiracy. And the tension on both of those creates this sense of... Uh, uh, imbalance where the average person is standing there going, okay, I, uh, I mean, I've always grown up, if your doctor says you should do this, you should be a good patient and do what your doctor says, right? But what do you do when your doctor actually lies to you and they're caught in their lie? Or the other side of going, well, this, this argument, this system that they're building out, they're describing this thing and it, it makes a whole lot of sense, Right? 
But then we realize, no, there actually is an agenda behind this. It looks like there's not. It doesn't, you know, they don't have any credentials to say this, but there actually is an agenda behind it. And both of these things create systems that entrap people in such a way where we lose our sense of purpose, joy, <laughs> our ability to be able to connect with our fellow human being on the face of the planet. So is it right to look at these situations? Is it right to look at the things that go on in our world that our systems, be they as good as they may be, helpful as they may be, but to be angry at them when it causes us to not follow God's plan? Absolutely. What do we do as Christians when we talk about missions? We remember missions. We pray for missions. And we remember that missions have some dark spots to them. Like residential boarding schools in Canada that were under the guise of Christianity. The purpose of sharing the Gospel with indigenous peoples. But have a dark system that have now created barriers to people that we desperately want to know and love Jesus. But now because of this thing, it makes it incredibly hard. Is it right for us to be angry? It absolutely is. Now remember I said that anger as emotion is neither good nor bad, it just is. In the same way that hitting your thumb, it just happens. right? If you get angry, that's just what you are. You're angry. It's what you do with it that is either good or bad, life-giving or life-robbing. You can respond in anger and depression. Yep, I'm angry. There's nothing I can do about it. Yep, they did this to me. This was my life circumstances and there's nothing I can change about it. And I'm just going to live in depression. But how does Jesus respond to His anger? Jesus does something. A right response to anger. Right anger. Real anger. A right right response is passion. It's action. And how do we know that Jesus responded to this with action? Two ways. One, He looked at the man and said, you're healed. Nobody else is saying anything. I'm saying it. You're healed. He took action in that moment. But there's another aspect of this. In the broken world in which we live, things like withered hands exist. And in God's good design, that ought not be. That's a direct result of the fall, direct result of sin in this world. And Jesus looked at something like that and said, it ought not be. The word that is used here that is translated in your Bible, anger, is elsewhere in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is described as wrath. This isn't just, I'm angry. This is, I am incredibly angry. This ought not be. And the Scriptures describe God's wrath 
towards sin as this anger. Never miss the point that God is angry at sin. But God does something about it. Jesus does something about it. He looks at my sin. He looks at your sin. And He is angry. And He's so angry that He's willing to die for it. To take the full wrath, anger of God upon Himself. To drink the cup to its dregs. And to finish it out in this world. That's the story of the Gospel. That God was angry with our sin. And Jesus did something about it. It produced a passion in Him to say this ought not be. They should be reconciled to the Father. And so Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's an incredible passion. And it actually stems from His anger. God's anger towards sin. Do you struggle with anger? Is anger one of those things that just... You don't have to try real hard, it just pops up. You get angry with yourself. You get angry with others. You get angry with your students in your classroom or angry with your coworkers. First and foremost, let it be something that is humbling to us. That if we can understand being angry about something that ought not be for just one little inconvenience, a, a computer that doesn't want to work, How much more can we understand God's anger towards my sin that He paid the penalty for and and ransomed me for? It should drive us to humility. It should drive us to a sense of long-suffering that Jesus was long-suffering for us. So Lord, help me in my my anger. Help Help it not to be the first response. Help it to be one of those things that It takes a little bit when it comes towards me, when it's attacked towards me, before I'm immediately angry and before I respond. Secondly, let it be one of those things that we ask the question, is this anger, am I feeling like a, a fear, a rage that I need to control this? And Lord, forgive me of this sense of that I need to control the people around me. And third, if it is an anger that is something that ought not be, and if God has given you any ability to do something about it, then say, God, in this anger, don't let me waste it. Let it drive a passion in my soul to say, these things ought not be. This situation ought to be rectified. This person ought to be loved. This wound ought to be healed. This this situation needs compassion poured into it. This uh, uh, poverty situation needs resource poured into it. Whatever it is, Lord, help me to be angry at the things that ought not be in Your sight. And give me your passion to do something about it. And if we can capture that, we can have anger just like Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray, God, that You would help us to be angry at the things that we ought to be. We do get angry about things that are trivial oftentimes. Help us in our anger not to sin. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in this. And Lord, there's a lot of things that we ought to be angry about that we're not. We're desensitized to. We stand like the Pharisees, silent in the face of situations that ought to spur our hearts towards action. So forgive us, Lord, for those times of indifference. Forgive us for the sins of omission in those scenarios. Jesus, we're asking that You would help us to have a heart like Yours that responds in long-suffering against actions against us, that responds decisively to things that ought not be directly in front of us, and to care deeply about systems, things that are in place that keep people away from You, whether they be full-blown legalism, whether it be bad habits, whether it be political leanings, whatever it is, Lord, if there are things that are systems in place that are keeping people from You, help us to be angry at those things and to do something about them. King Jesus, we're thankful that You loved us enough that You took God's anger that was due us upon Yourself. Help us to live in humility because of that reality. Holy Spirit, help us to live passion-driven lives because there's still a lot of things that ought not be even in our own life. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com. Dot com.